Oh, good morning. We're going to cover all of that today. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, after Jared's uh, sermon last week, which was fantastic, we were just focusing on the, the reality of, of God's Word and, and the, the sense that it's reliable, trustworthy, infallible, communicates to us not only an accurate view of God, an accurate view of history, an accurate view of ourselves, an accurate view of the future, like in, it contains within and of itself a depth of truth that is uh, never going to be mine this side of heaven. Like we, we get to be able to attend and to study the truth of God's word and, and know and understand more about God and at the same time understand more about us and more about the work that the Lord is doing. There's just a, a, a real sense of hope and resiliency as we continue to revisit the truth of God's word and, and discover more about his characteristics and, and the work that he's doing in us. And, and we're changing and being convicted and growing and moving towards maturity. All of these things are fantastic. And so after last week's sermon, Aaron and I were at home after the service. And she said, well, what are you preaching on next week? And I said, God. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, and that's true in the sense that what we're going to be moving through is a, a discussion about the doctrine of God. But that, that sounds great and it's really big. It's just the thought of kind of putting our arms around that it seems impossible. And so really when we're talking about kind of the, the basics of our faith or the fundamentals, uh, we need to narrow it, it down a bit. And I think one of the places that tends to be the most confusing, not even just throughout church history, but even here and now, is our understanding of the scope and the work and the reality of the Trinity. And so that's really where we're going to be kind of setting up anchor this morning is understanding the, uh, even as we sung that, that last verse on holy, 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 right? God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Like, what does that even fundamentally mean? How do we understand how God's word clarifies the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What do those things look like? And I want to start off with Deuteronomy 29, 29, because I think it gives us a bit of a framework, because I believe that as we understand the scope of the Trinity, there's some mystery involved in it, but I believe it's wholeheartedly accessible as we walk in faith in him. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. There's just a sense in which there's certainly some mystery. The thought that we could uh, capture or fully understand the, the scope of who God is and his character is, is foolish as finite beings trying to understand an infinite God. But that doesn't mean as we jump into this kind of deeper theological topics like God's word, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of God, all of these things that somehow they're elusive to us. I really believe that the, the word of God allows it to be accessible, but it forces us in some ways it, with sincere hearts to, to think deeply about the deep things of God. Legendary coach Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers, was a, he was a, a fanatic about the fundamentals. Like he would always remind his team about blocking and tackling and just the essential things of what it meant to be a football player. After one uh, notorious loss to a team that they shouldn't have lost to, they had practiced the next day. Vince Lombardi gathers the entire team together and he says, okay, men, it's time to get back to the basics. This is a football if it's in the air, you catch it. 
If it's on the ground, pick it up. If the other team has it, tackle them and try and get it. Men, this is a football. And I think that there's some sense in which the reality of reminding ourselves of the fundamentals puts us back into the the basics and the essential elements of, of really what God has communicated about himself. And it's not a disciplinary, like you guys have really blown it, and so let's get back to understanding who God really is. But it is a sense in which we need the constant reminders of who God is. Why? Because I think on a regular basis, not only the world, but I even think that sometimes, if not often, the brokenness of people, even in the context of church, tend to dismantle our view of God. Slight confession here, kind of a classic rock fan. So when I'm on my runs and rides, I'm listening to classic rock. And just recently this week, sure enough, Bon Jovi comes on, shot through the heart and you're, yeah, I'm a good singer too, right? And, and you're to blame, darling, you give love a, a bad name. Right in that moment, I'm thinking, that's the church, right? You think we have all of this pronouncement on who God is, and yet there's this brokenness and this reality of what exists in the context of our relationship with one another. And I wonder if times where we've said, you know what, the church has given love a bad name. We've maybe missed the boat or we've nuanced things in a certain way. And so in the midst of those things, I think we've got to go back and just remember the reality and the substance of who God declares himself to be. A.W. Tozer said it this way, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when you think about God, what comes to your mind? For many of us, we would say that we remember moments where we felt like God was distant or uh, unavailable or unaccessible. We feel like there's punishment or struggle or hurt. We don't understand how we can, uh, these things have happened to us that God has uh, allowed to happen. It seems like he's, he's unkind and ungenerous. So we think about him and it affects how we understand our, our view of God and other people. Other times we see God as this kind of benevolent Santa Claus that if we just ask whatever we want, he gives it to us. And, and so if we, if we ask, then we get and, and we just continue to hope to get. And yet we're the source of The desire for all those things is our own heart. I think A.W. Tozer is right. That that ultimately, I think what he's getting at is that our problem is not with the God of the Bible. Our problem is with who we think the God of the Bible is. Fundamentally different approach and and, and vantage point. And so what we want to do this morning is is look through the accessibility of how God communicates himself as this, this triune perfect God and perfect relationship, perfect unity within and of itself, the the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, all uniquely at work, describing who God is in in essence in all of those things. And so what I want to do is there's a couple of passages that we're going to be jumping through, and and we're not going to be spending tons of time on them, but I do want to give us a a picture of the reality of the relationship with the Trinity. But here's what I also want to make sure doesn't happen. That we leave it up here in the mental ascent of theological truth and not really certain about how the reality of the Trinity 
functions in our lives on a daily basis. Like, I, I got, there's got to be a place of practicality with the truth of understanding the, the character and the nature of God that moves itself outside of just understanding and into a, a practical anticipation of how the Lord is going to work. So I want to move to Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to start off. Um, God's Electric Power Company, if you need to, to find out where it's at. Um, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 15. And here's Paul speaking to the church at Colossae and, and really beginning to describe the substance of the eternal nature of Christ himself. Look at how he describes it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven." So I read a little bit further there than what we had up on the screen, but there's just this rhythm of what Paul is doing as he's communicating about the reality of Christ and, and the substance of what that means, that the, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that, that Jesus Christ, in, in essence, is God, just like God is the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all working together equal, co-equal, in essence, and unique, but they're not one and the same individual. So we got three persons under one Godhead. So perfect community and perfect unity exist in the Godhead. So why is this significant? Thomas Merton said it this way, which I really love. He said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is, once, he is at once infinite solitude, one in nature, and perfect society, three persons. Here's where I think he's moving us to, to realize these things. As we understand the fullness of God's character manifested in, in Christ and God the Father and God the Son, you get this sense that there is this overarching reality of God's work in all of human history. Even Paul tells the church at Colossae, he's, Christ is preeminent and it, everything was made through him and for him and that he's reconciling himself to all things that the, the functioning of, of Jesus Christ, the son of God, God himself is uniting this perfect plan that God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit were all equally involved in. So throughout human history and even church history, this has been one of the sources of the greatest contention and conflict within the context of the church. Heresy upon heresy was kind of developed from a misunderstanding about the nature, character and the nature of God. And so we have a diagram that I want to put up that will just give us a bit of a picture of, of what I'm talking about, about how the fact that, that God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit, but all of them in themselves is God. So we got this 
triunity that's existing when we're understanding that when we talk about God, we're talking about three in one. We're talking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all functioning, all having the essence of who God is, but not one of them is the other person. So the person of God the Father is not the person of God the Son. The person of God the Son is not the person of God the Holy Spirit. They are all distinct and yet fully and completely unified. That's awesome, right? We're like, okay, what? <laughs> so and I, I'm, I'm honest about that because it sounds all great theologically, but what difference does it really, really make? And let me, let me offer to you a suggestion this morning. I think one of the most beautiful aspects of the Trinity is if you put it in comparison or back the backdrop of all other religions, most all other religions have sort of one sort of authority in those things that's functioning and relating with humanity on the basis of power, right? So do this and you'll be okay. Don't do this and you'll get in trouble. Follow me and everything will be all set. But there's just this assessment or this interaction from the world, from all other religions, from the basis of God being the one in charge and having this authority and power is the source from which all of these things operate. When you look at the Trinity, you're getting this example and this, this picture, it's not an example, but you're getting this truth that functionally the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working in perfect community. Their operation in the world is already manifested from an understanding of perfect love and union with one another. That the operational reality is that they are totally and completely sufficient within and of themselves, that they're not in need of anything, and yet responding to their own creation as they created the universe as a way to experience and unite people with the love that they experience already in existence. Let me see if I can give you an example of how Athanasius said it back in church history. And this is a bit of a long quote, but you'll see where he's going. Whoever will be saved, he says, before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the Catholic or universal faith. Which faith, unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without a doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the universal faith is this that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons or dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is all one, the glory co-equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. All, as also they are not three uncreated or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is one almighty, so the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is the Lord, the Son is the Lord, and the Holy Ghost is the Lord. And yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. Man, this is, gets deep, right? For like we have compelled by the Christian 
verity, the knowledge that every person by himself to be God and the Lord, so we are forbidden by the universal religion to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made by none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And this is the Trinity. None is before or after another. None is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal, co-equal. So that in all things, as foresaid, unity in the Trinity and Trinity in unity is to be worshiped. He therefore will be saved. Let him thus think of the Trinity. Now, obviously, the content is really thick when you think about what Athanasius is communicating. But the reality of the accessibility of the Trinity comes from the knowledge that is what we're experiencing is not different forms of God or, or God becoming first the Father, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a heresy from way back when called modalism. What, what God is communicating is that the perfect essence of God found in three persons, the Trinity, allows us to experience a God who is in perfect communion, perfect unity, and perfect love with itself that then transcends, as Philippians tells us, that the Son of God empties himself and takes the form of a man in order for us to have accessibility to that perfect love and perfect unity that God has provided for himself. So let me, let's look at a couple places of scripture where the word explains this a little bit better. And then really kind of what I want to do is move this a bit to street level, because again, this could become, I mean, we, we could all geek out about some of these things and really dive down deep. And I think it's worthy to look at, but I want to look at John 14 verses one through 31. So this is a, a scope of scripture where uh, you're getting this sense where Jesus is preparing the disciples for specifically for the fact that he's not going to be around. His physical presence won't be with them anymore. And he, he, he lays out the reality of the uniquenesses of these relationships between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They become so uh, substantive, so significant that it begins to help us understand how the Trinity functions in our daily life. So let me read this portion of scripture for us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, well, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you'd known my Father also. For now you do know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me 
Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the words themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, the Helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans, John sa Jesus says. I will come to you yet a little while, uh, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, and you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he will... Uh, he it is that loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest himself to him. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring your remembrance all the things that I've said." Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let you be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe." I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, has no claim on me. But I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let's go from here. Again, a whole chapter of scripture, but what you're getting is this unique nuance and, and, and connection between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all functioning in ways, all functioning, each of them independent as as functioning as God, in essence, one. So the Father is God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God. They're all perfectly functioning in unity with one another as they're operating. And again, the result in the disciples is they're worried about things falling apart. The communication is you can trust the triune God in such a way that it relieves fear and anxiety. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I've got this figured out. I'm working in ways beyond what you can see. I'm communicating to you truth. I'm leaving you with God, the Holy Spirit, and operating in your life to, to bring you into truth, to help you understand the things of God, to, to work in you in such ways that you understand and move to the, the reality of God's perfect unity within and of himself. So let me suggest to you that unmatched delight is found in the triune God that dwells inside of us through faith. I think one of the most significant parts of this text is that it, it says that, that um, uh, as, as the Father has loved me, I 
love you. Like as we think about the notion and the aspects of the Trinity, what we're really experiencing is the exact same love that the Father, God the Father has for God the Son through faith you and I experience. We're loved as sons and daughters. We're, we're brought into that perfect unifying relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're included into the family. This, this triune God has invited us into himself and provided us a relationship and access to him in, in new and unique and fresh and valuable ways so that the voices of the world and the challenges around us don't diminish who God is. What we're, what we're really seeing is this, this sense of valuing God above all things. Paul David Tripp says it this way. He says, I think the greatest problem that people have is what he would call an awe problem. That I think at times we've lost a sense of awe in the work in which God is calling us to, this intimate abiding relationship with the God of the universe. And so Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. When his disciples, and it's about this text in John 14, when his disciples were about to have the world collapsed in on them. Our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of the Trinity for practical Christianity, this must surely be it. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, with a biblical understanding of the Trinity, we can say that God did not create in order to be loved, but rather created out of an overflow of perfect love that had always existed amongst the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who ever live in perfect mutual relationship and delight. So again, accessibility, what we're thinking about, when we think about conceptually about God and we talk about the God of the Bible, we're talking about even in the beginning of creation, uh, you get this, this language where it says, let us create man in our own image. Right? You're getting this plurality and this reality that even from the very beginning, the, the Trinity is in operation, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are consistently at work drawing us to himself with that aspect of perfect love that God is exuding from his own nature. He's perfectly sufficient and totally contained. He's communicating about his love to us that is drawing us into that relationship. So I think when we look at these things, there, there's just a a substance and a significance of thinking about why we would call ourselves those who believe in a God who is Trinitarian, that, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, this perfect community exists to, to draw us into perfect love and relationship with him. He moves on in John 17, and, and this is a, a, the kind of final passage I wanna look at, talking about the high priestly prayer. And, and verses 20 through 26, I think, are, are, are really significant to, to highlight the reality of what it means to believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's what he says in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you and I are one, Father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them 
you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that uh, you have sent me. I've made it known to them. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make known that they love, uh, that the love in which you have loved me may be in them as I am in them. This prayer is kind of one of the final prayers of Christ in this high priestly prayer, praying for, for you and me specifically, is really talking about this unique and, and incredible supernatural mysterious marriage, if you will, of a deep and abiding relationship with the Father and the Son and, and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Son and us. And, and so we're, we're united with this, this bond of love that, that God has given us through the aspects of, of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so ultimately, the perfect unity of the Trinity unites us with the perfect passion for God's glory. That what we're saying is that there is a sense in which God is glorifying himself and that as the unity of the church, which is a, a, a supernatural miracle for hundreds and thousands of people to get together and be united together in those things, reflects the glory of God and ultimately reflects the perfect reality of the Trinity. That is not without uh, and it's fully sufficient within and of itself that, that there is a, a sense of perfect unity that transcends our own specific situation to be able to give us an understanding of, of God being completely and totally related within and of himself. So uh, let me just see if we can pare it down as we kind of finish up here, but pare it down to some more practical implications. When we think about the Trinity, certainly it's a theological concept that runs it through the pages of Scripture. It tells us a lot about who God is and how he relates and his perfect sufficiency, that God is never dealing with us from a, a sense in which he has a need, but he's completely independent and sufficient within and of himself. So his pursuit and response and direction towards us is out of love and concern and purposefulness on the part of the Godhead himself. But I don't know, have you guys ever been in a situation, maybe you've said it, I probably have too, or maybe you've certainly heard it, where you're talking with a friend or a loved one, and here's what they say, God told me to do this, right? Or the spirit is moving in me, and I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. It's coming to, to my purview numerous times from the context of specifically marriage counseling, where the spouse is saying, yeah, I really feel like the spirit is telling me that my wife is wrong. That doesn't always work out so great, but here's what happens. Why the Trinity matters in those situations is because what we're realizing is that the spirit will never prompt anything inside your life that isn't already confirmed in God's word. Like it's not gonna generate something based on achieving our own selfish ambitions. That whatever the spirit prompts is confirmed by the word and authored by the father himself. Like there is a sense in which all of these things are operating together. So as the spirit is working in our life, it's going to move us closer to the reality of God's word, his conviction and transformation and change in our life and not gonna be prompting us to, to desire things that are just about ourselves are getting our own needs met. 
that we realize that we don't see fully clearly about these things. And so as the Spirit works in our lives, gives us thoughts and insights or, or understandings about things, it, it's never going to come in competition with the truth of God's Word itself. So God told me would be confirmed by the fact that God not just told you, but communicated about himself through his word. I think that's one practical implication that I think sometimes we label our own selfish desires and we, we just plant God on top of it. And I think we have to be really careful with that because I think often we find ourselves thinking that we are much more righteous than we really are. Paul David Tripp, again, not to use too many quotes from him, but it said it this way. It said, one of the greatest obstacles for uh, the work of Christ in your life is not your sin because that's been dealt with on the cross. It's actually your perceived righteousness. That when we get to a place where we think we don't really have the needs that we really have, we become less dependent on the reality of the gospel at work in our lives. And so perceived righteousness is incredibly dangerous because we're not continuing to meet the truth that we daily need to depend on Jesus. Here's where I think the real application of the Trinity comes in. So in Vermont, there was a, a guy, his name was Don, uh, great guy, just uh, loved the Lord, cared deeply about life, cared deeply about people. He was a teacher, and there was one moment where they were on this, uh, getting ready to get on this sailboat to just go for a trip with some friends. Just being a kind and, and generous guy with some chivalry, he saw this person that was getting ready to get on the sailboat. And he knew that she likely needed help. So he, he got off the sailboat and, and gave her his hand and, and helped her get on. As he turned back around, the boom came across and hit him in the head. In the process of that, that began um, a, a lifelong, life-altering event where he had what they call torticollis, which meant that his, his head for the next uh, two and a half decades began to just continue to twist to the left. He had, uh, he had to take Botox shots to kill his muscles in the back of his neck. And we, we walked through so many ups and downs of life together. He had to wear a collar his whole life. And uh, he had a hard time uh, even dealing. He couldn't teach anymore. Just, a, 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 just an opportunity for him to be kind to someone else. Life alternately changed his life where he was in chronic pain for the rest of his life. And so we would talk. And he would ask, I, I don't know what to do. I want to have faith and I want to begin to pray that the Lord would heal me. And so we, we did. We certainly prayed together consistently about those things. And then he'd begin to generate a sense of, well, if I'm going to have enough faith to believe that God can heal my prayers, then I just need to believe it in such a way that it changes my lifestyle. He, he always used to say this, if you pray for rain, bring an umbrella. So he did. <laughs> He would come to church on Sundays, chronic, just almost excruciating pain. But he would come without his collar on because he believed and desired that the Lord would heal him from those situations. Never happened. We continue to walk through these things together. But it was the reality of the Trinity and, and the soothing comfort that would come in those moments where I'd be sitting by his bedside and he would be slowly wasting away and not be able to eat and we would be praying and we'd be talking about the reality of the comfort of the Holy Spirit through faith in God the Son promised through God the Father that would allow him the necessary strength supernaturally to continue to endure something that seemed like would just a freak accident 
but absolutely seemed to define his earthly life from that point forward. And we would pray that the Lord would heal, but we would also pray that the sustaining grace of the triune God would sustain him in the moments where it seemed like things were just unmanageable. We would pray that the insurance company would be able to provide the necessary Botox for his neck so that he would be out of pain for about two or three weeks until it would just come back again. The Trinity is certainly a theological truth that you find on almost every page of Scripture communicating about the reality of who God is. But it's accessible because what we're understanding when we understand the Trinity is we're understanding a a perfect unity, perfect relationship with the Godhead himself that allows us access to a God who is fully sufficient and uh, able to provide necessary strength and resources within and of itself by allowing us intimacy with him so that now we're invited into this unity and this love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have for one another. That they're not in conjunction or competition with one another, but they're that which is providing for us the joy and the substance of what it means to be in relationship with the God of the universe. Hebrews tells us as much. Approach the throne of grace with boldness, that you may, may receive mercy and help in your time of need. That the God of the universe, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are infinitely operating with infinite resources that are allowing us infinite intimacy with the God of the universe that no matter how chronic or difficult life might be, there is an ability to trust the fullness of God's character because we trust a God who is never without. We trust a God who is never having, never trying to figure out what to do, but always perfectly operating in the world that in everything, as Colossians tells us, he might be preeminent. He might matter more than all things. And I think that's one of the things that that God taught me through Don was that in the midst of life that is chronically filled with pain and brokenness, and certainly there's joy to have in this life. Certainly there's hope for this life. But at the end of the day, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? That, That through faith, in the shed blood of Christ, I am united and invited in to intimacy with the triune God himself. That the Father loves me, and I am loved by the Father in ways that I can't even imagine. Like my sonship, my relationship is so uniquely tied to the Father's love for the Son. I'm, I'm loved like the Father loved the Son. I'm valued like Father God valued the Son of God, the Son valued the Holy Spirit. Like there's just a a sense in which the hope is so tied to the reality of the triune passion, uh, God's triune passion for his people. There is just such a a unity and a perfection that it leads to, to experiencing the glory of God and God being glorified even in this life. The the desire this morning as we look at the Trinity and think about these things is that not just will we have some deeper theological knowledge, but that we will truly trust the God of the Bible, that how God communicates himself and about himself will be that which will continue to sustain us in the most difficult moments of life, but also be that which changes us when we think we've got everything figured out. 
The desire as we walk through this series is kind of a Vince Lombardi moment. It's back to the basics. The truth of the Trinity is that you were loved by a God who is completely sufficient, totally unified, and loves you beyond what you can imagine. Would you pray with me?